That's not how it works. You have to choose. Do you want paint that is the color of molasses or do you want cinnamon crunch or do you want a fresh croissant or do you want roasted cashew or granola or a toasted bagel and by the time you pick your paint colors it's time to eat. We recognize that these are designed to give you an idea of what the color would look like on the wall. These are paint samples. Sample is actually the root word of a word we use a lot, the word example. In fact, older versions translate example as in sample. Now I want us to think about in our lives and in the life of this congregation, who do we look to as a sample, as a representation of what we ought to be? Who do we look for as an example. When we open our New Testament, there are many bad examples. You can read about Laodicea, which was the lukewarm church, or you can read about Sardis, which was the dead church, or you can read about Corinth, which was the divided church. But when we open up our Bibles and we read about the church at Thessalonica, we get a different picture. The first chapter, beginning in verse 2, Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. This is a church that is strong and vigorous. These are people who have remained steady and solid in their faith and love. These brethren are deeply invested in the spread of the gospel. Yes, they dealt with issues. Yes, they dealt with challenges. No, it was not a perfect church. But in the second chapter and in verse 20, Paul calls these brethren his glory and joy. And this epistle reveals that they had examples which they followed. And it also shows that they had become an example for other brethren. And so three different times in this epistle you are going to see the phrase, you became. And I want us to think about what are we becoming as God's people. In chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. It is important for us to note that in following the example of the evangelists who modeled themselves after Christ, the brethren in Thessalonica are following Christ. 
This passage speaks specifically of the pattern which was set forth by Paul and Silas and Timothy. We see in verse 1, those are the men who are writing to this church. In other passages, Paul speaks of himself and other brethren as a pattern to follow. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. Philippians 3 and 17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Of course, the ultimate reason to follow someone like Paul was not because Paul was so great, but because Paul was following Jesus. Paul was making an effort to be like Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The lesson for us is that we need people in our lives whose conduct is worthy to be emulated. The Hebrew writer in chapter 13 and verse 7 says, Remember those who rule over you have spoken the word of God to you whose faith Follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Who are you following? As a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as a brother or sister in Christ, as a Christian, is there someone you are looking to? As an example, if someone is not working to be like Jesus in their life, that is not someone we should be seeking to imitate. And that is true if we're talking to our young people, and that is true if we're talking to our older people. Who's in our lives are these people who are like Jesus? We need to model ourselves after people who are modeling their lives after the Lord. If you seek to model yourself after someone, you're going to listen to their message. Several times Paul commends these brethren for their reception of the Word. Chapter 1 and verse 6, you receive the Word in much affliction. Chapter 2 and verse 13, We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as it really is the Word of God. Much of the success they experienced was due to the eagerness with which they received the truth. Now the contrast to that is that when one rejects Scripture, they are rejecting God. Chapter 4 and verse 8, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now this again connects back to the idea of finding people and listening to people who reflect the teaching and conduct of the Lord. If you desire to do God's will, that leads you to seek God's will. We are to place a premium on evaluating someone's teaching to see if it measures up against the Scriptures. Chapter 5 and verse 21, test everything, hold fast that which is good. It's ironic, 
that Paul tells these brethren that because this is something the Jewish leaders in their own city did not do. Do you remember in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 he says, we need to be like the Bereans, not like those in Thessalonica. Because he says the Bereans searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The reason why this is so important is because proper teaching leads to proper practice. Chapter 4 and verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing. You've heard it. You've accepted it. You're doing it. Can that be said of us? Now it is important for us also to note that being a follower of the Lord and His people often carries with it affliction. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We won't look at it for time's sake, but if you go to Acts chapter 17 and you read about the establishment of the church in Thessalonica, the church was established amidst persecution. And as we read the letters, this persecution seemed to be continuing. And as we live our lives today, we are not immune to such treatment. John 16 and verse 33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Martin Luther is credited with asking a rhetorical question. If Christ was crowned with a crown of thorns, why should His followers expect only a crown of roses? And yet in the midst of trial, the disciple has a joy which cannot be taken away. And so he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Who are we following? Who are we seeking to emulate? We need to answer that question. And if we don't get the answer we want, we need to make some changes. Secondly... In chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, You became imitators of the churches in Judea. Now he is speaking specifically here about persecution and suffering. The term imitators or followers is used in a slightly different way in this passage. He's not saying that the Thessalonian church made a conscious choice. We're going to pattern ourselves after those churches in Judea. They've really got it going on. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is the churches in Judea endured much suffering and continue to do so. And in a like manner, you also endure suffering. We're not exactly sure what the Thessalonians had suffered. But it must have been substantial to warrant such a comparison. 
Because let's think about this. You know this more than likely. You just may need to be reminded. Go back to Acts chapter 8. When he speaks about these churches in Judea and he talks about their suffering, what's he talking about? Well, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, Saul approved of the execution of Stephen... And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about everywhere preaching the Word. And so this persecution included a displacement. How did the brethren get to Judea in the first place? They were forced out of Jerusalem. And it also included imprisonment. It speaks there how many were imprisoned. And so years later as we read the Thessalonian letter... Paul is the one writing, Paul would have understood very well the suffering that the Judean churches endured because he's the one who caused it. And he says, you have become like them. Verse 14 of chapter 2, You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. The Thessalonian church remained faithful through the trials so did the Judean brethren. Paul worried about the Thessalonians. Chapter 3 and verse 4, When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul had warned them, but he still worried about them. And yet he says that Timothy has come and has brought good news about your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And so Paul was worried that these brethren were going to give up when times got hard, but they didn't. They endured. And that brought him great comfort. It brought him relief. Now the takeaway for us is, what do you do when times get hard? What do you do when a loved one dies? What do you do when you are diagnosed with something that is terminal or something that is very serious? What do you do when you walk in tomorrow morning and your boss says, we don't need you anymore? 
What do you do when a spouse walks out on you, walks out on your kids, walks out on everything that you have built together? What do you do when the world in which we live becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity and says that you are a bigot and unloving, that you are out of touch with reality and out of date with the times. What do you do in those moments? There are a lot of people who throw up their hands and quit, give up, and just go along. There are a lot of people who in those moments, their faith is shattered. But not these brethren. What about us? And then let's go back very quickly to chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, You became examples to all who believe. He's talked about how they had followed him, how they had followed the churches in Judea, but now he flips it and he says, People are watching you. Chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. And Achaia, the two provinces that he mentions here, Macedonia and Achaia, that at the time comprised all of Greece. And so what Paul is saying in a very real sense is that the disciples throughout the entire nation have been inspired by the example of the Thessalonian church. And then he adds that the word had gone forth in every place, verse 8, the word of their faith. Everybody knew about their devotion. People were watching them. And people are watching you. They had become examples in their faith. They had taken a stand for the truth. Verse 9, you turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You made a stand. You put a stake in the ground and you said, this is the direction we're going. We're not going that way anymore. Maybe that's what some of us need to do. Not only that, they were examples in their conduct. Go to chapter 4. We'll spend most of the rest of our time in chapter 4. Four, Chapter 4 and verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. It's important to note they were already doing these things. And so Paul is going to encourage them to do them even more. At my job we have a saying, we say, you don't have to be bad to get better. And sometimes I think we miss that point. And we think that if the preacher comes along or if we open the Word of God and it is encouraging us to do something better or to do something at a higher level, that everything we're doing must be bad. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, you are doing a good job. But there is still room for growth. 
He talks about purity. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. When he speaks there about wronging your brother in this matter, he is speaking of going in and taking someone's spouse, going in and committing adultery. Paul is imploring them to abstain from sexual immorality. This is the same Greek term that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 19. Paul here is speaking of sexual misconduct outside the bonds of marriage. One is able to abstain from sexual immorality by building up their own marriage. There is imagery used throughout Scripture to illustrate the sanctity of marriage. Proverbs 5 speaks about it as a vessel or as a cistern. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. One has said that marriage is like a fence on which there is a no trespassing sign. And yet in the world in which we live, people jump over that fence all the time. Just last night I heard a story of a fellow who'd been married for probably about 20 years. But his wife decided she wanted something else. And so she left him a whole slew of kids to pursue something else. What are we pursuing? What are we thinking in those moments? Paul speaks about the importance of purity. He talks about love. Of course, they were already heavily engaged in this Christian grace toward one another and toward other brethren. You can read in other passages how they cared for other brethren in different places. But of course, love is an exponential quality, which means that it can always grow. It can always be manifested even more than it currently is. It's not just something once you fill a jar of it up, put the lid on, there's all the love you ever need. That's not how it works. And then he talks about what I've called here honesty. Our conduct, conduct that is honest toward others. Verse 11, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is how we interact in the world in which we live. Scripture condemns idleness. Some commentators connect the idleness of some of the Thessalonian brethren to their belief that the Lord's return was imminent. Well, if Jesus is coming back next week, might as well quit my job. And that may be true. The second letter touches on that a little bit. But regardless of the circumstances, there's no excuse for neglecting one's daily tasks. 
Scripture values hard work. There is nothing shameful about manual labor. In fact, Paul in the book of Ephesians compares manual labor and he says that is the opposite of stealing. Ephesians 4 and 28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands that which is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. It's interesting, here he's writing to people living in a Greek city, and he says, work with your hands. The Greeks despised manual labor. They saw it as an occupation fit for slaves. That was beneath them in their mind. But Christians, God's people, don't hesitate to insist on the dignity of manual work. I worry that some of the issues in our society stem from the fact that we don't value hard work. Are there some who think that manual labor is beneath them? We need to be very, very cautious and careful about that. There is a purpose to hard work. It builds independence. It gains us the respect of unbelievers. He speaks about that here. Colossians 4 and 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. What kind of a worker are we going to be? The church at Thessalonica was an example. And we've talked about what that church looked like. We didn't say a word about what their building looked like. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. We haven't said how many people went to church there. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. We haven't said whether they had two elders or whether they had six elders or whether they had twelve elders. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Sometimes those are the things we focus on with a church. What's the building look like? How many people are there? What do the numbers on the board say? How much money's in the treasury? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But what we do know is the relationship they had with the Lord. What we do know is the relationship they had with their brethren because those are the things that matter. And so as we think about them, the conversation must turn to us. Who are we following? And who could use us as as an example? People are watching you. The people in this community know You go to church at Ben. They do. And they are looking for something more than what they have. And they're looking for people who walk the walk and talk the talk. Why does this matter? There's lots of reasons, but let me leave you with one. 
from 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And then he speaks about the coming of the Lord and he says, We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why does it matter that people are watching you? Why does it matter the example that we are to others? Because we have something they need. We have an eternal hope. And if we are not being the example that we should be, and if we're not showing them how to respond in the hard times, And if we are not living lives of purity and love, and if we are not honest toward those who are outside, if we're the people who are laying back and being lazy, or if we're the people who are cutting corners on the job, why in the world would anybody want to be like us? We need to show what genuine discipleship is like, not just on a Sunday morning, but every day of of our lives. So what have we become? Who are we looking to? Who's looking to us? Answer those questions. That's the invitation. I want you to think about those things while we stand, while we sing.